I'm Jeremy, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it was a blessing to be a part of uh, worshiping with our young people as they sang boisterously and hand motions. It was, it was really great. Uh, very blessed by that. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we finished uh, the sermon of the Beatitudes, and Pastor John, in the last sermon of that, talked about persecution and, and hardship. And then this was also emphasized through the testimony of James Bonnenblust, who came up and shared testimony of some of the adversity that his, him and his family have been experiencing over the past couple of years. Well, the scripture passages that were both referenced, uh, I'm going to be referencing them uh, a little bit later in this sermon and then the next sermon because this is a two-part series of looking at spiritual resiliency. And some of you might not know this, but others of you might. Uh, I'm on the back end of completing my doctorate, and uh, I've been kind of going through this for almost three years now. And this, uh, this piece of developing one's spiritual resiliency, their spiritual fitness, their spiritual life, and how it correlates to life when facing adversity, right? This is, this is what I've been studying and researching over the past few years. Now, the statistics um, and, the, and the research shows 100%, it's provable now, that when we sustain and we build our spiritual core, our spiritual life, when we press in to God and we develop this, it will give us an 80% protection against substance abuse or dependency, uh, drugs, alcohol, tobacco, things like that. Research also shows that it'll give us around a 50% protection against major uh, depressive disorders. And, and all this uh, research, I think I, yeah, I, I cite Lisa Miller, who's the uh, doctor who, um, who did this. And also this unnecessary risk-taking reduction, uh, 70% reduction, that's when you're unnecessary risk-taking. That's like when you're at a 4th of July party coming up and you're like, hey, this sounds like a good idea. No, it's, it's to 70% reduction in those good idea fairies that are floating around in your head, right? And, and then between a 50 and 80% decrease in suicidal ideation or going through and completing suicide. And now, why is it not 100%, right? If Jesus is the answer, why is it not 100%? Well, because we're still human and we live in a fallen world. Can, can you turn me down just a little bit, Nate? Um, yeah, I just feel like I'm, because I'm loud enough, right? Okay. So I knew all of this in my, in my mind ahead, right? Then I was like, you know, there's got to be a correlation between how strong our spiritual lives are and our uh, protection against all these other things in this world, right? And now science it, over the past 20 or 30 years has finally caught up and is proving what the Bible has already said is true, right? Hey, wouldn't you know God's words uh, are true throughout time and science is finally realizing that uh, this is true as well. Well, those who have a deep faith in Jesus Christ and these practice are spiritual disciplines. We're going to be protected against a lot of these pitfalls that I just mentioned, which unfortunately is not only plaguing those outside of church, those who are non-Christians, but it's also plaguing those who are in the church as well. There's a very high percentage of people who are aged 18 to 25 right now, and this is based on the research as well, that they're not truly prepared for adulthood, 
right? And the biggest, most pressing issue in their life right now is suicide. Fragility, and, and, and which is not being able to handle difficult situations, ideas, people, or being challenged, especially in the United States, with social media or cancel culture, looking at uh, protesting of, of free speech and so on. Many people have heard uh, this, this group of people called snowflakes, right? It's like if you just touch it, they'll just fall apart. But the same age group has been shielded from dealing with disappointment and failure. Good-intentioned and well-intentioned adults and parents have shielded the younger generation from experiencing hardship, from experiencing failure. We don't want them to experience hardships. We want to prevent that as a good thing, right? And so those well-intentioned ideas have caused our younger generation to not know or have the tools to equip with difficulties when it happens. Since 2005 to 2015, mental health counseling has increased threefold. And I don't think it's this generation's fault, right? Because it's the well-intentioned adults and parents who I think have unwilling, uh, winning, wittingly uh, caused some of this within that generation. We've rewarded mediocrity. We've almost encouraged apathy. We've given young people entertainment at their fingertips with almost no filter. And they don't know how to handle all the things that they're seeing and experiencing and being faced with. And and many of the young people that I encounter in military service, uh, they have not experienced much adversity or failure in their life either. And so a girlfriend or boyfriend breaks up with them. Some of them are ready to end their life. And I wonder, I ask myself, man, you know, there's, I don't want to discount that experience from you because I know that's really difficult, but in the grand scheme of life, there is so much more that you're going to go through that's going to be more difficult than that. Many of these people are turning to substance abuse or drowning out in, in fantasy online with gaming or, or whatever else. What I want kids to know, and and it's appropriate that I'm sharing this message during the VBS week, even though most of the kids left, but for, for all of you here, here's what I want you to know. Number one, God loves you, and God exists. God exists, and God loves you. Number two, don't see adversity as something to avoid. Embrace it. Number three, I don't want your crisis of faith to happen when you're facing a life and death decision. I want you to work now and struggle with your spirituality and your relationship with Jesus Christ and what you believe about God now so when adversity comes, your crisis of faith does not completely destroy you and you end up turning to those other things. Young people today in general, and, and, and I think that this is probably true for those who are 30 and younger, that their concept of God and, and an understanding and wrestling who God is, how God exists in this world, how the formation of this earth occurred, God's relationship and interaction with humanity and this earth isn't really well developed because we've not given the space for those conversations to take place. And because God is such a big and broad concept, 
It's hard, it hurts our brain to wrap our heads around God in this earth, the God in this universe. It's so much easier just to watch TikTok. It's so much easier just to watch shorts on Instagram or Facebook, to drown out in YouTube or Netflix or Prime or Hulu or sports. It's just much easier to turn to something else because we don't want to do the hard work and challenge our brains. Here's the connection. Our spiritual lives, your spiritual life right now is directly correlated with determining how well you're going to deal with disappointments, adversities, hardships when they come. But this brings me to this person in the Bible who we're going to look at first, who experienced a great amount of adversity and struggle. Maybe some of you have heard of him. His name is Moses. Anybody Raise your hand if you've ever heard of someone named Moses before. Okay, good, about 30 of you. Well, Moses was born under the threat of death. Moses was born literally under the threat of death, separated early on from his biological mother. He was raised by a people who were different than him, who looked a little bit different than him, spoke a different language, and he was with this group of people who were then oppressing those of his own ethnicity and background. When he got older, something in him snapped because he saw a fellow Egyptian, someone was abusing a Hebrew, one of his people, right? And he murders the Egyptian. This is not normal behavior, by the way. He murders the Egyptian, and then it's found out by someone, and then he flees. He flees to a place called Midian. He meets a priest. He likes the priest's daughter, and they get married. They have a son, and it's not too much longer where Moses encounters God in the wilderness through a burning bush. And it's clear that either within his, his own shame, his fear, or whatever, God asks him to do something that seems impossible. God says, I want you to go back to the Pharaoh of Egypt, and I want you to tell him to let the people go. Go and to go and worship. And Moses gives pretty much every excuse he can think of of why he cannot do this. He has slow of speech. He has difficulty talking. God's like, fine, I'll let your brother Aaron go with you. Uh, he'll do some of the talking. But he's like, I don't know what your name is. What should I call you? And he's, he's coming with all these excuses. Well, finally, he does it. He listens to God, and he's going back on the way to Egypt. And on along the way, God gets so frustrated with Moses that he almost kills him right there in the wilderness. Finally, Moses shows up to Egypt. He encounters the Pharaoh, and he says, Pharaoh to the Pharaoh, or I don't know what his name is, Bill or something, I don't know. He says, he says Pharaoh, we got to let uh, our people go. We want to go out. We want to make sacrifice. We want to go and worship our God in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, no, you want to go out there because your people are lazy. We, are, we're, we have you here enslaved, and you're trying to get away from the hard work. So here's what we're going to do. Because of your ridiculous request, we're going to make you do twice the amount of work. Well, now the Hebrew people who Moses is there to help release are frustrated. They're angry. 
They're mad at Moses. Who is this troublemaker that's coming and come from the wilderness who's stirring up all these problems for us? Now we're having to do twice the work. You would have just been better to keep your mouth shut. Well, eventually the plagues come. Moses leads the people through the parting of the Red Sea. They get to the other side. Pharaoh's army is chasing after them. The water's closed. They drown. They're on the other end. Uh, They're out of Egypt. They're free from slavery that they had experienced for 400 years. And within the day, they begin complaining and grumbling against Moses because there's no water, there's no food. And when you get hangry, right, you've all been hangry before, you get complaining. You get complaining, you get angry. And so Moses is leading like a million people. That's about how many people it was. There was around a million people who left Egypt and they're in the wilderness with no food and no water. And now the people are grumbling against him. Moses is being tested with adversity. God hears the complaints and the, and the pleas from the people. He says, okay, you know, we're going to hear what's going on. All right, I hear you. I will give you water, and I'm going to give you food. And so Moses cries out to God and says, what's next? See, Moses seeks God. Moses petitions God. He doesn't look at how he's going to accomplish this task on his own. He goes and he petitions God, how am I going to do this for your people that you have called me to lead? Well, God instructs Moses to go over to a particular rock in Exodus chapter 17, verses 5 through 7. He says, I want you to go over to this rock. You're going to strike the rock with the staff that I had given to you, and water is going to flow out. See that? Moses seeks God for answers. God provides, and they have water. Everyone's happy. And then the Amalekites come, and they make war against the people. Now, when they left Egypt, they didn't have any weapons or anything. They weren't, like, grabbing swords and shields and and all those things. But there was war uh, that the Amalekites uh, did against the Hebrews. And if you want to hear about the constant rebelling that Moses had to endure through that entire time, go back and just read Numbers chapter uh, 12 through 17. Because those chapters will describe all the complaining and all the stuff that Moses had to deal with. Moses and the people are in the wilderness around a million people and they are finally learning how to have complete dependency and trust in God. And they're struggling with how to do that because they've never had to do it before. But now they're there. There is nothing, nowhere else to turn to other than God and they're learning dependency for the first time and it's a struggle. They're on the struggle bus with learning how to do this with God. Well, throughout the book of Exodus, Moses receives more death threats from the people that he's there to lead. Many times he's discouraged, he's overworked. And throughout these discouragements, he receives an glorious encounter with God at the top of Mount Sinai, and he's up there for 40 days, and him and God are just connecting. He gets the Ten Commandments. He comes down, and he sees everybody worshiping this golden calf. 
He's angry, he's frustrated again. Look at these evildoers. There's a plague that breaks out among the people. People die. And he has to go back up to the mountain to receive further instruction. Then, in Numbers chapter 20, here it comes. The people are grumbling, surprised, yet again, against Moses that there is no water and that they are wanting to go back to Egypt, where at least they had food and water. They want to go back to slavery because anything would be better than this. And so Moses is so frustrated. He's so angry at the people. And God says, I want you to go over to this rock and I want you to speak to the rock this time. And through Moses' rebellion, through his focus on the people's sins and all the anger that he's got built up against these people, he goes over to the rock and he takes his staff and he strikes the rock. And water flows out and the people have water. But... This time, instead of trusting God, Moses takes it upon himself to strike the rock and not speak to the rock. There was a disobedience, and he's punished. And we find out what that punishment is in Numbers chapter 20, verses 9 through 13. Moses was not perfect. Moses messed up. And he didn't just mess up between him and God. It was he messed up in, in front of everybody the people didn't know that probably that Moses or God told Moses to go and speak to the rock. But his rebellion was definitely done in front of the people. Um, Walter uh, Elwell says this. He says, Moses concentrates more on the sin of the people than on the Lord as the gracious and comparable sovereign provider for the people. And instead of magnifying the Lord as the shepherd of his people and as the source of living water, Moses in anger speaks to Aaron and himself as the provider. He takes what was God doing the supernatural act and he started placing this on himself as the one who was providing him and Aaron. So here's the thing. And sometimes when we read through the Bible, we gloss over things pretty easy. Maybe it's early in the morning or late at night when we're reading the Bible and we just kind of gloss over some truth. And then we come back and we read the Bible again. We're like, oh, I didn't know that that happened there. How did I miss that? Numbers chapter 20 is one such encounter for me. What happened that Moses came to a place to where he struck the rock and through his frustration and anger, he struck the rock rather than speaking to the rock well, at the beginning of Numbers chapter 20, his sister died. His sister died. And Moses is at the lowest point, I think, of his life. And when you're at your worst, you can either choose to turn to God or you can turn away from God. But Moses' sister dies. And Moses' sister isn't just some random woman. Who was the one that pulled, uh, when Moses was being pulled from the basket in the, in the reeds and the Pharaoh's daughter found him, it was Miriam who came and said, let me go and grab the mother to nurse this child. That was Miriam that pulled, that was, that was there at the river, the Nile River with Moses. 
When they left Egypt and they went through the Red Sea and they got to the other side, it was a song that Miriam led. It was Miriam's song that was being sung at the other end of the Red Sea. And now Miriam is dead. His sister, who had been with him from the very beginning, and now there's a grumbling for water. There's a quote. It says, in almost every reference to Miriam, there's a mentioning of water. And if the Israelites need for water, the saving powers that distract us from Miriam, no wonder her name means bitter waters. Erica Brown said that. When I think of the strong bonds that family members have today and the connections that we have, to lose a close family member like that can set us into a tailspin. It can turn us away from God. Was Moses' relationship so strong or so dependent that he was depending more on her at that time rather than God himself? Well, was her death the final breaking point? That happened in his life. I don't know. But instead he struck the rock rather than speaking to it and God punished him. But this is not how we remember Moses, is it? We remember Moses, the very last chapter of Deuteronomy. What was written about Moses and everything that had occurred from the time of Exodus through the end of Deuteronomy. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 10 through 12. Since then, no prophet uh, has risen in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, for no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. That's how Moses was remembered. God spoke to Moses face to face. And if Moses had that relationship with God to where God could speak to him face to face and that God performed all these miracles and miraculous signs and wonders through this guy Moses and yet he was still flawed, this gives me a little bit of hope. And this is how Moses was remembered. It wasn't through his failure. It was through the things where he showed faithfulness to God. Look, In the end, God simply just wants to demonstrate what only he can do for us and not what we can do for ourselves. The answers are not within us. We don't have that inner strength. That inner strength comes from God alone. God is the sustainer of our lives. The issues that I told you early on that you can prevent It's provable. Research is showing it and proving it. There's MRI scans of people's brains, of the part that's developed that is stronger in those who are more spiritually uh, fit or um, have a stronger spiritual life. But I want you to know that you cannot allow your feelings, especially in those times of difficulty, to dictate your action. You have to still choose to do what's right. And not let your feelings dictate what you're going to do. I don't know how I would react if one of my kids died. 
And I don't think any one of us can truly ever know what will happen when tragedy comes our way, how we will respond, how we will turn to God or not. I don't know what would happen if I lost everybody. If all the things were taken away, thinking of Job and all that he endured, I don't know if I could have come out on the other end like he did. And I don't know if any of us can really know how well we're going to do until time comes, when it happens. But don't wait until tragedy or difficulty, adversity happens before you start working on this life with God. Don't wait to start doing those spiritual disciplines, to start pressing into God now before difficulty happens. We have this saying in the army, you know, if the enemy's shooting at you, that's not the time to start loading your weapon. It's already too late at that point. I don't want you to be at a life or death point in your life before you start pressing into God. Start building the tools now. Start developing those spiritual disciplines in your life now. We do not lean on our own understanding. We read that scripture passage earlier in Proverbs chapter 3. Because it's not sustainable or achievable, we do not rely on our own understanding. Instead, we trust God. We don't have the answers. God has the answers. And as we learn to depend on God throughout our life, we need to teach our kids That adversity is not something to be avoided. That hardship and difficulty is not something that we should move away from. Sometimes we should let our kids fail and allow them to struggle through it while they're still under our roof so that they can know how to handle things in the future. So I I didn't ask Hannah if I had permission to share this, but I'll share it and she'll get mad at me later. Hannah ran out of money for gas. She, didn't have, she couldn't go anywhere. And I was like, well, you run out of money. Sorry. I'm not, I'm not putting gas in your car. You're going to have to figure out how to get to school for the next, like, three or four days until, like... I, I, it's like it would have been so easy for me just to, like, well, let me just put gas in your car. No, but I, <laughs> I let her struggle a little bit, right? Eventually she got gas in her car, right? I'm not that bad of a parent, but... I think sometimes we jump in too early to bail our kids out. And I think that's a disservice. I think sometimes, and especially as we help develop our next generations, that we allow them to fail at times, but also to give them grace, to shower them with mercy, to give them love, but also to let them know what it's like and how they can start developing the tools of the spiritual disciplines to turn to God when difficulty happens. So that's the message today. Um, I want you to come back next week and the weeks to come, right? But next week, I'm going to do part two as we look at this person named Paul. Has anybody heard of this guy named Paul? Used to be named Saul, previous name Saul. All right, let's pray. Jesus, uh, thank you um, for your love. Thank you for your grace and mercy. God, thank you for adversity. God, that shouldn't be something that we avoid, but God, it helps us develop. God, the perseverance gives us hope, and hope doesn't disappoint us. So God, as we uh, continue to struggle, as, as difficulty and adversity happens, Help us to turn to you. And God, before those things happen, help us to develop that deeper relationship with you where we can turn to you in all things. 
through the good and through the bad. Help us to encourage and walk with one another who are going through hardships. And let us just ever be mindful of you in our life. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.